Uh, I'm Pete Stearns, and I'm our middle school pastor here, and I get the privilege to serve with you on Saturday nights as well. And I'm sure if you are anything like me, you are wondering when we're going to start eating pizza. I promise it will be soon, um, and I'm looking forward to joining together for a meal. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to be here. Lord, we thank you that you invite us into your presence. Lord, that you are a God that is in community with us. Lord, a God that sits with us in our pain, celebrates us in our gladness. Lord, we pray that as we come before you tonight, that, Lord, we would, we would learn more about how you communicate with us. Lord, that we would learn how we can engraft our spirit into your presence. Lord, that as we leave this place, we carry with us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, follow after your leadings. As we enter into your word, we pray that you would overwhelm our spirit. And Lord, that you would speak to us in a new way. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, my wife and I are fairly big fans of the television show Seinfeld. I'm sure we have plenty of others in the audience that also enjoy Seinfeld. But we were just watching a couple nights ago an episode that was focused primarily on a character named George Costanza. Now, if you're not familiar with Seinfeld, George Costanza is this insecure underachieving, goofy-looking guy. And George is constantly screwing things up and turning to his friend Jerry for help. And in this one particular episode, George has just gone on a date with a woman that he really liked. And so he's been, uh, they were talking at the end of the date, they enjoyed each other's conversation, he was telling funny jokes, she was laughing, and so they decided, hey, let's do this again sometime. And they exchanged phone numbers, and, and the intention would be that George would call her back. And so the next day, George calls, and she doesn't pick up, but he leaves a voicemail telling her how much he enjoyed hanging out and that he looks forward to seeing her again pretty soon and just give him a call back. And a day goes by, and sure enough, the woman hasn't called. And so George is beginning to be a little concerned, but he wonders maybe if the message machine is malfunctioning, she missed her voicemail. So he calls again, again receives the message, and, and so lets her know, hey, you know, just wondering if you got my voicemail, give me a call, yada, yada, yada. Sure enough, next day, no call. So George is a little agitated at this point, and he calls back and just starts talking to her in the frustration, but cuts it short, but then feels like he's not finished, and so he keeps calling her back and keeps leaving voicemail after voicemail, getting angrier and angrier and angrier with this woman that won't respond to him until finally he's just screaming at her on the phone, telling her how she has no integrity and how, you know, I'm sorry that I am balding and this, that, and the other thing, and he is just, he's just livid. And so he decides to confide in his good friend, Jerry Seinfeld, um, this situation that he's found himself in. And so he shares with Jerry all about this situation. And Jerry says, isn't she on vacation in the Hamptons this weekend? And George is overwhelmed as he realizes the mistake that he's made and realizes that this woman is going to come home to a plethora of angry voicemails. Um, it's a hilarious episode, but one that I think 
resonates with me and my spiritual walk, and I think one that might resonate with you as well. How many of us at one point in our life came into this experience with God where we felt God, he was alive in us, we were excited about our faith, and so we decided that we were going to dedicate the rest of our lives to following him. But then from there on out, it just felt like we were leaving him voicemails that he never got. As we came to him in prayer, presenting our requests, some lighthearted, some very deep and emotional, yet oftentimes we didn't feel that response. And if you're like me, our immediate reaction is to think that God's not real or he doesn't care. It's one of the two. Now, our lectionary text today comes from John chapter 11, and it's the story of, the, of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Um, and this story, I think, is one that is um, highlighting these different perspectives and these different ways that Jesus and his disciples engage with one another. And I think that it might help us with our voicemail faith. Now, Obviously, the focus of this um, passage and the reason that most of us are familiar with it is because this is a miracle that is impactful, a miracle that is powerful. Jesus Christ raises a man from death and brings him back to life. We are all very familiar. And in fact, in John chapter 11, we're going to read it. John chapter 11, verses um, 39 or 44 We see Jesus say, Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grace cloths, and his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. It's an incredible image of God standing before the grave of a man that he loves and calling him back from death. In fact, it's been um, attributed as the seventh and final sign that Jesus was truly God. But the reality is, is that this is an incredibly long story. And John only decides to dedicate those two simple verses to this powerful miracle. And I think it's because John would prefer to focus our attention on the buildup. John would prefer to focus our attention on these real relationships that Jesus has with his disciples and his closest friends. And I think as we take a closer look at those we'll begin to glean a little bit of how we might change our relationship with God. And I think if you're anything like me, you'll recognize your reflection in the responses of Jesus' closest friends. So it's a long passage, as we said, so we're going to paraphrase and highlight a few of these different verses. But the story starts out right after Jesus has been chased out of Judea. Jesus was in Judea and he was preaching and he shared with the people that he was indeed the same as his father, that he was God. And these people were so infuriated by his blasphemy that they picked up stones and tried to kill Jesus. But Jesus and his disciples somehow escape and now we find them on the other side of the Jordan River over a hundred miles away. They have traveled off into the wilderness to escape those that were following them. And it's at this point that Jesus is sitting with his disciples and a messenger appears. And the messenger comes to them and says, Jesus, your dear friend Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary are in trouble. Lazarus is very sick and is going to die. And the messenger says that Mary and Martha would like you to come quickly to heal him. Now, it's interesting because Jesus receives this word that his friends are in in peril 
And he doesn't do anything. In fact, it says very plainly that Jesus sits and doesn't even tell his disciples that the messenger came for two days. Remember, Jesus is off in the wilderness, way away from other people. So it's not like he's healing others or preaching to others. He's just there. Yet still, he does not respond. And two days go by, and Jesus instinctively knows that Lazarus has passed away. Lazarus has died. And he turns to his disciples and tells them that their dear friend has passed away and that they should go together to the funeral to be with those that are mourning the death of Lazarus. This is how the disciples respond to that. It's John 11, chapter 8. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? This is the first interaction that we see in this story between Jesus and his dear friends, his followers, his disciples. And I think it's a reaction that many of us have. You see, the disciples treated Jesus like he was some sort of optimistic child. Oh, Jesus, hold on. I don't think you understand. They're going to kill us if we go back to Judea. If we go to see Lazarus in that town that they just chased us out of, they will kill us. Jesus, you don't understand what you're asking of us. You don't understand that if we go with you, it's not going to fit well with our life. It's going to be uncomfortable. How many of us treat Jesus like he doesn't understand our problems? Like he doesn't understand what we're going through. And he's this optimistic little boy that doesn't understand our big boy problems. I know I do it. Jesus calls us in scripture to be giving to be giving cheerfully, as Bill said. Yet oftentimes we try to explain to God, God, I, I know, I know that we've been called to give, but you don't understand because rent's coming up in just a couple of days and finances are tight and I don't think I can do it right now. Giving of our time. Jesus, you don't understand. It's really busy at work right now. I think I might get a promotion pretty soon. We'll deal with that later. To turn our other cheek when somebody is abusing and mistreating us. Jesus, you don't understand what this type of person is. You don't get how my boss treats me. If you understood, you wouldn't have told me that. Jesus calls us not to judge those that are around us. But Jesus, I don't think you realize how bad their sins are. Trust me, if you knew, you'd want me to judge them. We treat Jesus like he couldn't understand what we're going through. Like he hasn't been there before. Like he is not in our pain with us. And because of that, we separate him from us. We push him away. And he, we only come to him with things that we think he might be able to help us with, that we think he might understand. And so after the disciples say this to Jesus, Jesus continues to tell them that they needed to go see Lazarus and that they would be safe. And the disciples finally concede. And Thomas says, literally his words, Thomas says, fine, we'll go with Jesus. We might as well die too. Like, they have no hope that this man that they've been walking with, this man that has done countless miracles, is actually going to be able to make it into this city alive. Thomas is like, all right, we'll go, we love you, we'll follow you, and we're going to die with you. And that's just how it's going to be. And so the disciples in Jesus, we said they were 100 miles away. So this is about a four-day trek. Begin this trek. So this will be six days from when they were first told 
that Lazarus was feeling sick and on his deathbed. And so now they make their trek for four days and they come upon the town and Martha, Lazarus's sister, runs out to meet Jesus and shares with him that her, her brother has died. Now imagine this. The person that is closest to you in your life, maybe one of your last remaining relatives, has passed away and this person that had the power to heal him didn't come. Jesus, or Martha runs out and tells him this. And this is what happens. Jesus, in chapter 11, verse 23, it says, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me believes in me and will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she said. Now, we know that she actually doesn't understand because a few verses later, as Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, he says, roll the stone away. And Martha says, don't do that. It's going to smell. Don't do that. Jesus, he has been dead for four days. Do not roll the stone away. And so we know that as she hears Jesus, she hears the voice of a condescending Sunday school teacher. You know, you know, have you ever been in that experience where you share with an adult in your life, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a close friend, this devastating news, this horrible thing that has happened to you, and they tell you, don't worry, Jesus loves you. Don't worry, it's trials that are going to make you stronger. Did you know that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory? And you're like, I know, I know that these are good things. But the reality is, is that I am in pain right now. And I want you to be in that pain with me. I want you to empathize with what's going on in my life. This is Martha. She shares with Jesus, Jesus, my brother has just died. And I truly believe had you been here, you could have done something. And Jesus says, he'll rise again. And Martha's response is, I know, I know. We all go to heaven after we die if we believe in you. I get it. But that's not helping right now, Jesus. She doesn't realize that Jesus, quite frankly, means to say, I am literally going to go to the grave today and raise your brother from the dead. I know that we put Jesus in this box all the time. We come to him in our despair, but we don't expect anything because we know that Jesus is this guy that's apparently quoting good verses to us and parables that might help us out. But he's not a God that feels our pain. He's a God that is separated from us. He is the advice guru and doesn't actually care about what's going on in our lives. Again, this separates us from our God. It places God high up in the distance. A God that just shares with us parables and stories that may or may not be applicable to my situation. So they continue walking to the house there at the outskirts of the city, and they continue walking in. And Martha's other sister, Mary, comes out to Jesus and falls to the ground at his feet. And this is what she says in verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, why didn't you come when we told you? We called for you six days ago. Where were you? Why didn't you answer our request? Did it not get to you? See, Mary is 
perceiving and having expectations of Jesus as if he was the supervisor. Jesus, I wrote you a proposal. All you needed to do was sign on the bottom and give it back to me, and it would have been fine. Jesus, I submitted my expenses. If you had just signed here, everything would have been okay. Jesus, were you too busy to hear my request? Jesus, did you not hear them? Did you not respond to them? Why didn't you come? Because surely, if you had read and signed, we wouldn't have been in this predicament. I know I do this. I've been praying over and over and over for something, and for some reason, I'm not getting the answer that I want. I spelled it out very clearly to God. This is what I need. This is what we need in the midst of this pain. Sign there. Things will be better. And he hasn't responded. I imagine a a pile of these expense reports on his table, and he just didn't have time to get to them. But you see, when we think of Jesus as this supervisor, again, we separate him as a God that even cares. We make assumptions and expectations that he is this God sitting on a throne apart from his people. And sometimes he helps out when he can get around to it. But otherwise, he doesn't know what to say to us to make it apply. He's hopelessly optimistic in times of trouble and rarely present when we need him the most. This completely separates us from who God is. Now, I'm a pretty big Animal Planet and Discovery Channel buff here. I love watching documentaries about any sort of predator. I I promise you, Brittany will fall asleep on the couch, and I will watch four hours about a polar bear wandering through Siberia or something like this. And I love watching um, these animals as they use their instincts to chase down and hunt their prey. And so this earlier this week, I was doing some research on wolves, because that's the kind of guy I am. And I was reading this article, and it was talking about how wolves hunt, and I was pretty excited about that. And um, and it said that wolves, as a pack, will come up to a um, herd of moose. I believe it's herd. I don't know. Or a group of deer or bison. And they will begin chasing, barking, and nipping at the heels of these animals that are ten times their size, hoping to get the animals to start running. And then once the animals start running, they'll continue to chase until one of them falls away from the pack. Until they can get one separated from the others. And then they'll attack that animal. But I was surprised to find out that nine times out of ten, they chase and don't get any results. Nine times out of ten, they chase these animals. They don't get out of their pack. They stay tight together. But that one time that the animal falls behind... The wolves attack it mercilessly, and they bring it down, and it falls victim to these wolves. This is what Satan is trying to do to us. He's going to put pressure on us. He's going to put pressure on us that will test our relationship with God, that will test how we perceive and expect God to respond to us. And he is hoping above all hope that that will separate us from our God. That if we have fallen into one of these previous expectations, that he will separate us from God and we will be prone to fall into the effects of sin. But the reality is, is that God is not this distant God. God is not a God that is far above us 
or all the way across the city. God is a God that is dwelling within us. In Romans 8, we see a passage, verses 9 and 10. 10 is going to go up on the screen, but I want to read uh, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. Our relationship with God is not one of a father with a child or one of a child to their teacher or an employee to their boss or supervisor. We are tightly woven in to God's Spirit. He is experiencing our problems and our dilemmas with us firsthand. In fact, Jesus himself likens our relationship with him in John 15, verse 5, as this vine with these branches. So interconnected that there are certain parts of it that you can't tell where the branch is and where the vine is. And that Jesus is sustaining us because he is very much engrafted into who we are and we are engrafted into who he is. And as we continue in this story, we're going to see a beautiful picture of Jesus engaging with his followers in a way that defies all of their expectations. So let's look back at John chapter 11. And we'll start with verse 33. This is right after he's been with Mary. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Now, before we go any farther, the English language does not explain Jesus' anger, anger well enough. In Greek, this word for anger is the same one that they use to describe a bull that is furious and snorting and filled with rage and about to charge. This is the anger that has welled up in Christ. And this passage doesn't explain to us exactly why Jesus is angry. We might be tempted to believe that it's because his followers just don't get it. But I think it's because Jesus is now confronted with the effects of sin in this world. He is confronted with the very reason that he has come to dwell among these people. That sin entered the world, that it broke his people, and that it resulted in physical death. And he is furious. He is right there with Mary and Martha in their anger. He is right there with that family as they are frustrated and broken. Because he knows without sin in this world... If it had never entered, that his people would not be broken, that his people would not be exhausted, and that his people would not die. And continues on in 34, Where have you put him? he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. Again, the English language does not convey this well. The Greek would say that Jesus burst into tears, overwhelmed with the sorrow, recognizing the pain of these people mourning around him, recognizing that all hope was lost. 
They tell Jesus that the body has been in there for four days. And this is very symbolic because in um, the Hebrew understanding, they believe that the spirit of the person would rise and wait above that person for three full days. Hoping to be revived, hoping to enter back into the body. But after the third day, the spirit would just leave. Lazarus was dead without a doubt. And these people were mourning and hurt. And Jesus was right there with them in his pain. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested the Lord. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. We know what happens next. We read it at the beginning. But I think when Jesus defies their expectations, it's when he enters into their pain with them. He enters into their very real emotional pain. And he offers us a glimpse of God that we don't see very often. He offers us that glimpse of God that is tightly engrafted with his people. A God whose spirit aches when our spirits ache. The God that shares in our anger and in our suffering. I think in this passage and in Jesus' response, we begin to reorient how we view God. Instead of seeing as, as this little child or a condescending teacher or as an absent supervisor, we begin to see a God that is a good shepherd. A God that is willing to drop everything to go and seek out his one lost sheep. The one sheep that has gone astray. A God that is not too busy, not too overwhelmed to identify with each and every one of us in our struggles. We see a God who is a caring and encouraging father. A God that recognizes that there are going to be some challenges and some struggles that we are going to need to face and are going to need to walk through, but that those struggles and those challenges won't separate us from the pack. They won't allow us to be susceptible to the evil one. A God that is there with us in our pain, encouraging us along the way, but allowing us to learn hard lessons. And we also finally see a God that is a sacrificial lamb. This God that has come into this world to die in order to reverse the effects of sin in our lives. A God that is angered about what has happened as Satan has brought his sin into his people. And a God that is willing to use his ability as a sacrifice to begin to reverse that effect in our lives. And sometimes we'll see that when we're confronted by sin that is so dark and heavy that our soul mourns and suddenly we feel God's overwhelming presence reversing that effect on our lives. You see, as we leave today, let's start to reorient how we see God. Just like as we see in John fifteen five. 
We are engrafted into his spirit. We are a part of the vine. And we live through his spirit. We live through his nourishment, through his encouragement. But oftentimes, I think we're living as a branch that's already been cut off. A branch that doesn't believe that God is intimately in tune with us. A God that is far, far away. And when we begin to perceive and expect God to be far, far away, we find ourselves susceptible to those that are bearing down around us and to the effects of sin that are weighing heavy on our lives. So as we leave, let's have two takeaways, and they'll be on the screen here. What does your prayer life say about your expectations of Jesus? Who do you identify with the most? Do you identify with this person that views Jesus as a child that couldn't possibly understand the pain and suffering that they're in, that can't understand their problems? Do we perceive God as this school teacher or Sunday school teacher that's just giving us little helpful cliches that are not very relevant? Do we believe as God as this supervisor that's distant and busy and not very interested in what's going on in our lives? And if that's the case, how can we begin to shift that and start to understand ourselves as intimately intertwined with his spirit? How can we start to perceive and expect God to be that sacrificial lamb, to be that good shepherd, or to be that caring father? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that is not distant. Lord, that you are a God that is right there with us in our pain. Lord, that when we suffer, you suffer. Lord, that when we are angry about the injustices of this world, Lord, you are right there with us angry. Lord, let us see you this way. Let us fight off the temptations to assume that you are a God that hasn't checked his messages in a long time. Fight off the temptation to assume that you are a God that just doesn't care. And recognize that the closer we understand you to be, Lord, the more engrafted in your vine we will be. Lord, I pray that you would carry us through our struggles and hardships this week. And Lord, allow us to see you in a new way. We pray this in your name. Amen.